Good morning. It is so good to see all of you today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be back in Romans after taking a break last week, going in a little different direction. And when I say it's good to see you this morning, I really do mean it because after last week's message, I wasn't sure how many of you would come back. <laughs> really encouraging to see you back. It's good. The last time we were in Romans, we finished up the last half of chapter 5, where Paul is showing us the difference between what it means to be in Adam and what it means to be in Christ. We looked at how Adam was a type, a foreshadow of Jesus, and the fact that everyone comes into this world in Adam. Adam is who we are identified with because we are all born under the guilt of sin that came to all mankind as a result of Adam's rebellion and disobedience. The only way to escape our guilty association with Adam is through faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he is our only hope at being made right with God. And when we put our trust in him, we are no longer in Adam, but we are now in Christ. Our identity now lies with him instead of with Adam. At the end of chapter 5, we looked at a statement that Paul makes comparing these two states of being. In verse 20, he says that where sin abounded in Adam, grace abounds all the more in Jesus. In verse 21, he said where sin reigned over the life of those who are in Adam, Grace now reigns over the lives of those who are in Jesus. And I want to just briefly recap that part because that is such a significant statement that Paul made there. And it has everything to do with what we're going to be looking at this morning. Remember, being in Adam means that we were absolutely infested with and defiled by sin. Everything we do in Adam is sin. We can't help but sin, even the good deeds that we're thinking we're getting credit for is considered sin to God because everything that we put our hands to is absolutely tainted with sin's curse. Apart from salvation in Christ, you cannot escape the guilt of sin. Paul says it reigns over the lives of those who are in Adam. So then think about what it means then to compare what Paul is saying about being in Christ. He says, where sin abounded, when we are in Adam, and it abounded a great deal, grace then abounds all the more. So based on this whole context, the last point in the sermon two weeks ago was that in Adam you can't escape sin. And so in Jesus you can't escape grace. And then I mentioned how some folks have a problem with that because they're afraid that if you preach that, people are going to take that as a license to sin, thinking that they can just live however they want to if they can't escape grace. And I said that Paul must have been confronted with the same argument because he addresses that very issue next. So let's look at it. We're in Romans chapter 6. If you would stand with me as we receive the word of the Lord today. And we're only going to look at the first three verses here. 
He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Let's pray. Lord, just a few words here that you have given us to look at this morning, God. But there is so much meaning, so much power, just so many just nuggets of treasure in these few words. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come now and just uh, let us see what you would want each of us individually and as a body to see in this. God, like I said last week, I believe we are living in a time, Lord, where you are preparing your bride for your return. It's a time where you are separating the wheat from the chaff. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would just continue to do that. Jesus, would you be glorified in everything that's done here. In your precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. So the question is, if grace increases where sin abounds, doesn't that mean that we can just sin more so that we can experience grace more? If being in Jesus means that we can't escape sin, can I just continue to live in sin since I will never be out from under his grace? And Paul answers that by saying, first, may it never be, which in the original Greek translated to East Texan is heck no. And then he answers the question with a question, much like Jesus did to a lot of people when he was here. And he asked, how shall we who died still, died to sin, still live in it? Paul was not asking this question in order to initiate a theological discussion in the church in Rome. This is a rhetorical question that he is using in order to make an emphatic point. We do this all the time. I mean, if someone asks me, do you like steak? I may answer that with a rhetorical question by saying, is the sky blue? Is the Pope Catholic? Those questions aren't meant to be debated or even answered. The answer is implied because it is so obvious. The obvious answer then to a rhetorical question is the answer to the original question. So if you ask me if I like steak and I answered back, is the sky blue, then you know that yes, I like steak. But I wouldn't do that if I kind of like steak. And I wouldn't use a rhetorical question if it depended on what kind of steak it was or how it was cooked or anything like that. It is an emphatic, yes, I like steak. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. The rhetorical question is, how, how, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? The implied obvious answer there is that we can't. You cannot continue to live in something that you are dead to. So if the answer to the rhetorical question is we can't, what then is the answer to the original question? We can't. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And the answer is, for those who are truly in Christ, we can't. See that emphatic? I mean, it's just even right there in the sound system. We can't. 
Now let's look at it in the whole context here. The context of chapter 6 is chapter 5 where he's comparing being in Adam with being in Christ. As much as it is like this to be in Adam, it is even more so like this to be in Jesus. As eat up with sin as we were in Adam, we are even all the more eat up with grace in Jesus. As impossible as it was for you to not sin in Adam... It is all the more impossible for you to knowingly, willingly, in good conscience, continue in sin in Jesus. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, that can't be true. I mean, I know I'm in Christ, but I still sin pretty much every day. And you're right. We all do. So how do we reconcile that with what Paul is saying here? To understand what he's talking about, we need to understand what it really means to go from one state to the other. To go from being in Adam to being in Jesus. Because there's a whole lot more that happens that we tend to realize. And it's not just a change in our thinking. It's not just a change in our belief. And it's not just a change in our behavior. All of those things are involved in that change. But the change itself is much bigger Then all of that. When we come to saving faith, a miraculous, supernatural event occurs that only the Holy Spirit can do. It is a complete transformation of our total being. It is that miraculous change that then causes these other changes, like in our our perspective and in our behavior. Those changes are a result of the bigger change that the Holy Spirit Does And that's the key factor here. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can move us out from Adam and in to Jesus. I mean, you see, we can change our mind. We can change our belief and we can change our behavior. Technically, we don't need the Holy Spirit to do that. There are people who don't know Jesus, who don't have the Holy Spirit that change their behavior or their way of thinking, or their belief system all the time. So then those are not the things that determine who we are identified with. They may be indicators that the bigger change has occurred, but those aren't the things that determine whether or not we go from Adam to Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit first reveals the truth of the gospel to us. He is the one who opens our eyes to see our sin for what it is, And to see Jesus for who he is as the only remedy for our sin. And when we repent and receive him for salvation, that miraculous transformation takes place immediately. He takes all of the guilt of our sin and applies it to the finished work of the cross. He takes all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame and replaces that with the very righteousness of Jesus. He takes us out from under Adam and places us in Christ. And then our sin nature that we were born with, that we couldn't get away from in Adam, he kills it and replaces it with his divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. 
Like we talked about last week, in Adam, we couldn't help but sin. We love it. We crave it. We desire it. We can't help but to continue in it. We are so blind in our depravity that we don't even recognize sin when we're in it. But at the moment of salvation, that sin nature dies and is replaced by God's divine nature. With the Holy Spirit now in you, things have changed. There is now an awareness of sin that you didn't have before. There is now a disgust towards sin that wasn't there before. Instead of being drawn more and more towards sin, the Holy Spirit in you now draws you more and more away from it. You see, those who are in Adam, they don't even blink an eye to sin. The only way a lost person feels bad about their sin is when they experience the consequences of it. They may feel bad about the effect that it may have had on somebody else. They may feel bad about the damage that it's done to them. And they may feel bad about getting caught. But they don't feel any remorse or sorrow at all for the sin itself. There is no thought whatsoever to how that reflects upon God. They are incapable of seeing it from that perspective. But it's a wholly different scenario when you have the Spirit of Christ living in you. When a truly born-again believer sins, we are appalled and repentant about it. You can't help but respond that way because it is the response of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit cannot be indifferent or apathetic towards sin, nor choose to willfully pursue it with no repentance. So yes, even as believers, we still sin. It's how we respond to that sin that determines whether we are in Adam or whether we are in Christ. If we are in Adam, we will continue in that sin with no godly sorrow whatsoever. But if we are in Christ, we'll do what I talked about last week. We will grieve over it. We will bring it to Jesus. We will repent and walk away from it. So, do we use grace as a license to sin? If someone is doing that, using grace as their excuse to just go on and live however they want to, then that's a pretty good indicator that the Holy Spirit is not living inside of them, that their sin nature has not died. And the reason is because of this, and this is the first and the only point in your notes today. The sinful nature looks for every excuse to sin more. The divine nature is repulsed by sin. You see, a cat has the ability to swim in water, but that's not its nature. Its nature is to avoid getting wet. If it does happen to fall in water, what does its nature cause it to do? get out of that water as fast as possible. A bird has the ability to hop around on the ground from one place to another, but its nature is to fly above the ground. Yes, you have the ability to continue to live in sin, but if you have truly been saved, it is no longer in your nature to do so. If you do happen to fall in sin, and you you will... We all do, as long as we wear this body of flesh and live in this world, if you do fall in sin, your supernatural nature is eventually going to cause you to get out of and away from that sin as quickly as possible. 
And what Paul says in verse 3 makes this even more clear. He says, Are you, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now you need to keep in mind that Paul is not talking about the physical act of water baptism here. He's talking about the, the spiritual change that water baptism symbolizes. A lot of people assume that whenever you, we come to the word baptize in the New Testament that it's automatically talking about water baptism, but that's not so in every case. I've talked about this before, but I believe it's worth repeating. There are two different words in the Greek language that we can translate into our one word baptize, and they're the words bapto and baptizo. And for a long time, scholars were baffled as to what the difference was in the definitions between these two words, and all they knew to do was just translate it into baptize. But we do know the difference in them now, all because of the discovery of, I just love how God works. You'll probably remember me talking about this before, the discovery of a pickle recipe, of all things, that was written around 200 B.C., by a Greek poet and physician named Nicander. And he wrote this pickle recipe, and it said the, re- the recipe said to first dip, bapto, the cucumber in boiling water, and then to soak, baptizo, the cucumber in vinegar. What do we call a cucumber that has just been dipped in boiling water? A hot cucumber. (laughs) Nothing about its identity has been changed at all. But what do we call a cucumber that has been soaked in vinegar? A pickle. Nobody calls it a transformed cucumber. I mean, we don't even refer to it at all according to what it used to be, right? (laughs) I've known some adults who, as an adult, finally had the epiphany that a pickle is, used to be a cucumber. <laughs> I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> but that's, I mean, it's understandable because that's how much we see that the identity of that thing has been changed. It is a, a completely different thing. It goes from a cucumber to a pickle, and it can never go back to being a cucumber again. Because it is forever identified with what it has been baptizoed in. Paul is illustrating the fact that when we put our faith in Jesus for salvation, it's that kind of transformation that takes place in us. We are permanently identified with Christ. It's not just a change in our belief, our way of thinking, or a change in our behavior. It is a complete transformation of our entire identity. We are, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, a new creation. Not just an improved or modified version of our old self, but a completely new creation. We are something entirely other than what we were before. Some may ask still though, but if that's true, then why do I still sin? I believe that one of the reasons for that is because it's habit. It's what we've known for so long. We live for so long with a sinful nature. 
all we know how to do, we still have that, that the habit. It, it's more comfortable to us. Sometimes it, it, it makes more sense. But there's a big difference between falling in sin, recognizing it, and repenting of it. Difference between that and then choosing to walk in and live in sin with no repentance at all. Those who are in Christ do the former. Those who are in Adam do the latter. There was a time in my life where, believe it or not, I had a thick head of red hair. (laughs) I was in high school. Oh, my God. (laughs) I did not know that was going to be there. (laughs) See, there's proof. That's thick. (laughs) As you can tell, I went to high school in the 80s, (laughs) where a good head of hair was a big deal. Sporting the mullet. (laughs) But like men on both sides of my family, that hair began to get thinner and thinner. I eventually shaved it all off because I guess I wanted to be bald on my terms instead of my jeans terms. But for nearly 30 years of my life, I lived with hair on my head. And for a while, after I didn't have any hair, um, there were times where I would walk outside on a windy day, and I would automatically put my hand to my head and try to put my hair back in place. (laughs) I mean, it was just habit, you know? You know, some amputees say they can still feel an itch where their arm used to be. And I said, I can relate to that. Uh, Sometimes I still feel like my hair is messed up, even though it's not there anymore. (laughs) There were times when I would go swimming, I would come up out of the water and just shake my head from side to side, trying to sling all the water off my hair, even though it wasn't there. It's because I had lived for so long that way, it was just habit. It was just a natural Response, But then I would go, oh, man, that really looks silly, I'm sure. And I'd remind myself that I, I don't have the hair anymore. I don't do those things anymore because I've gotten used to being bald. I've accepted my identity as a bald man, and I no longer live as a person with hair because I have been set free, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I have fully accepted my identity, but it did take a little while to get here. And any time I would put my hand to my head or feel like I needed to shake the water out of my hair, I would stop and have to consciously remind myself, it's not there anymore. You don't need to do that. It would be foolish for me to try to fix something that wasn't there. If you have been saved, your sin nature isn't there anymore. And any time we feel tempted to sin, we need to remind ourselves, that's not who I am. That's not there anymore. I don't, I don't have to do that any longer. Of course, there are some people who struggle in sin more so than others, and I think a lot of that is because they just have a hard time accepting their new identity in Christ. They're still seeing themselves according to what they used to be instead of what they are now. And it's like some of those men that have a hard time accepting the fact that they're bald. They 
trying to hang on to the few remaining remnants they have and grow it out and pile it up on top, trying to cover it up and look like something that they're not. And I just want to go up to them and go, come on, man, (laughs) you're bald. Quit trying to act like you're not. And it's the same with those of us who are saved. There are some people I just want to go up to them and go, come on, man, this is not you. You're a child of the king now. It looks kind of silly for you to do something that's no longer there. You have the divine nature. You see, the more that we believe and accept our identity in Christ, the more our actions are going to line up. If you still see yourself in your old self, your actions are going to look more like that. But if you see yourself as someone who has been bought with a price, completely transformed, and is a new creation... Your actions will begin to line up with that. This is what our sanctification process is all about. It's learning to grow in Christ and learning to live in our new nature. And even though we have died to sin, at times we're still going to commit it. Because it's how we've lived for so long. And each time we feel tempted to do it, revert back to our old habits. We just stop and remind ourselves, that's not me. I don't have to do that anymore. In Adam, we were enslaved to sin, but in Jesus, we have been set free from it. In Adam, you couldn't help but sin. But in Jesus, you've been set free. We don't have to do it anymore. You can walk away from it. Unfortunately, we will never arrive at the place in this life where we aren't sinning at all. If we are growing in Christ, one of the results of that growth is that we can sin less, but like you've heard me say many times before, the goal of Christianity is not to stop sinning. And if you make that the goal, that's all you're going to be focused on. The goal of Christianity is to know Jesus. And it's only in light of knowing Him does sin begin to lose its appeal more and more. We have been given his divine nature that desires that, no longer enslaved to the sinful nature that desires everything opposite from that. And the more we actually believe it, the more we will begin to live like it. But the other reason we still do is because even though we are now permanently identified with Christ, we still live in a broken world. And we carry around in our flesh the residual effects of Adam's fall. The more we know Jesus, the more those residual effects have less of an effect on us. And that's what the sanctification process is. But this battle against our flesh will never end in this life. But when Jesus calls us home, returns for us, only then will it not be an issue anymore. And our sanctification process will be complete. There's something else that Paul says in verse 3 that can't be overlooked. He says that not only have we been baptized in him, in his life, but we are also baptized into his death. This is something I don't believe is talked about as much as it should be in church. But when you understand what that really means to have been baptized into his death, I promise you, you'll want to talk about it more and more. But it's 
too big of a deal for me to just tag on to the end of this sermon. So that's what we're going to look at next time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the miracle that you have offered us to take us from a state of Adam to a state of Jesus. Lord, that is too big for our finite minds to comprehend. God, we need you to show that to us. And Lord, I pray for those in here today who just seem to just fall and repent, fall and repent, fall and repent. God, would you break through right now, Lord, and let them see that that's not the life of someone who has died to it, God, that they would see what really happened to them when they put their faith in you. God, would you let them be able to accept their new identity in you rather than still seeing themselves in the old self. God, this is incredible news that we have been completely Changed that we have been given a new identity. We are no longer who we once were because of what happened at the cross and the grave. So God, I pray right now that we would be people who actually live like what we have been made into. And Lord, I pray for those that may be in here this morning who are now realizing, becoming aware for the first time that they have been in Adam. Or they may have been in intellectual agreement about the facts of the gospel, but now realizing they have never been truly transformed by the power of it. God, I pray for that power. Just do it work in their hearts right now. God, let us not miss this morning what you were saying specifically to each one of us. Lord, use this to mold us more and more into your image so we may live lives show that Jesus is alive and he is working and operating in the world today God thank you for doing something so incredible that it sounds too good to be true Lord we love you and Lord I just leave this remaining time together into your hands and ask that your will be done in Jesus name amen As we close in another short time of worship, just ask that you would just search your heart and see what it is God's trying to tell you in this. If there's something in your life that he is now making you aware of, that he's saying you need to repent of, please do that. Repentance is a glorious thing. It is a gift that God has given us. It's nothing that we should look at in shame, but it's something that we should celebrate together. And so I'm just hoping for a spirit of celebration to break through in this place today. If you need prayer for something specific, we'll have some of the leaders in the church down here on the front rows. But let's worship the Lord for what we have in Him. Let's all stand as we do that.